Hello again, I'm Pastor Hamilton with Arlington Baptist Podcast. We're glad you've joined us again today. We are coming to the end of a series uh, that I've been doing entitled The Seven Essentials of Salvation. And today we're going to finish that series with the seven of these essentials that we've been giving. We've been trying to uh, explain and put out uh, this idea that salvation to be understood, there are certain essential truths that have to be not only believed but embraced. Since we're on this last one, I want to do a quick review of the first six. I won't take any time to explain them, but just so you remember the order, uh, we said first of all was creation. Uh, second was revelation, or how God revealed himself to the world through his word, the Bible. Number three was legislation, how God gave uh, his laws to mankind, and all of us are going to be judged by his laws, primarily summed up in the Ten Commandments. Then we saw condemnation, how that when you break a law, there has to be a punishment, and God's punishment against sin is eternal death, separation from God. And then we turned the corner to some good news and looked at number five, redemption. God uh, sent his son to be the payment for our sins. Jesus is our redeemer. He paid the price through his own blood to save us. And then last week we looked at a very Christ-centered uh, uh, essential, and that was qualification. It was all about Christ being the only qualified, the only fitting Savior for the world. He is the God-man, became our mediator between God and man to bring us together. And so those six so far were explaining salvation. But now this last one we're going to look at that kind of brings it all together is vitally important. Uh, because without it, we could not ever receive the benefits of these first six. And so number seven, and our last essential of salvation, is called appropriation. Appropriation, which literally means to appropriate something is to take possession of it or obtain it. We're talking about now how can we obtain or take possession of this great gift of salvation? Isn't it amazing that the Bible refers to salvation, eternal life, as a gift? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, a gift has to be received. It's not automatic. It could be offered and rejected. And so we're going to talk about in this last lesson, how do we appropriate or obtain the great salvation God offers to the world? I want to start by saying, first of all, an important principle that we're going to use today in this last essential, this lesson, and that is the balanced approach. Uh, and that is, I believe the Bible teaches all the way from Genesis to Revelation that how God deals with the world with this most important subject of saving sinners. That's the greatest subject in the Bible. Uh, God's desire to save mankind and how he does that. There has to be a balanced approach. There's God's part, there's man's part. God's part is initiating. Our part is responding. And we have to get that balance right. Uh, if, if people get out of balance and they have God doing everything without man having any part in it, then you have nothing but uh, man being an, uh, a kind of a robotic uh, uh, computer-type uh, programmed individual or person that has nothing to do with his or her salvation. Uh, that's wrong. The other extreme is ha has man's part being 
too too much, him doing too much for himself to be saved, and that's works-based religion. And so the Bible teaches both God's part and man's part. You could really say we've been looking at God's part in the first six lessons, per se, and today we're going to kind of stress the, the kind of climax, the consequence of this whole thing, is man's response. I think a good analogy of this balance is to think about how uh, a man pursues a woman and she responds uh, in a relationship of marriage. You know, the Bible teaches, it might seem old-fashioned, but it's still God's way that the man was to be the initiator and the woman the responder. Remember in the great story of Isaac uh, and his wife Rebekah as Abraham sent his servant back to Mesopotamia to get a, a bride for his son Isaac who just lost his mother Sarah. Uh, remember what happened? The, the servant of Abraham went and described Isaac to Rebekah and her family and and wooed her and tried to convince her she ought to marry Isaac, who she never had seen before. And finally, when he asked the family and confronted them, said, well, will you let your, your daughter, your, your, your sister, Rebecca, come back to Canaan with me and marry Isaac? You remember who had the final say-so? Rebecca did. And that's exactly how salvation is. God's Holy Spirit woos us and shows us Christ and convinces us we need Christ. But God won't force himself on anyone. And the final decision is up to the sinner in his part. And so we're going to talk about that today. Now, perhaps the most common misbelief or misunderstanding of salvation is this idea that man can save himself. Since we're saying that man has a part, are we saying that man saves himself? No, not at all. Completely false. We're saying man simply responds to the gift that God extends and God only saves those who respond to his gift. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by religion. Many people think that when they get to heaven, there's going to be some kind of a scale where their good works uh, have to outweigh their sins, their bad works, and then God lets them in. No, that's not true at all. Even one sin would keep us from God because he's holy and without sin. He can't have any sin or sinners in, in his presence. We have to be free from all sin. And so the idea of saving yourself by your good works could not do it. Think, for instance, if a criminal had been found guilty in a court of law and he said to the judge, uh, Sir, I have uh, done a lot of good in other areas in my life. I've paid my taxes, been a good employee, you know, been maybe a good parent or husband, whatever, uh, so you ought to set me free. What would the judge say? No, sir, you're not here uh, to be tried for all the good things you did, you're here to be tried for the crime you committed. So no amount of good works we do can ever overcome or in some way pardon our sins. Uh, salvation is a work of God upon sinners that we respond to it and God does the work to save us. It's like a man who is, who's drowning out in a lake. I've used this illustration often in, in evangelism. If a man is drowning in a lake, and he sees a lifeguard on the shore. What does he do? He cries out for help. But as the lifeguard comes out to him, he's got to believe in the lifeguard. He's got to allow the lifeguard to take him to safety. And so in the same way, we're drowning in our sins. And we've got to see that Christ is the only answer. And we cry out to him to save us. And we let him save us. We submit to him. And so in Romans 10, 13, we see the great passage which says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Now, let's get into these two parts which the Bible teaches. There's two essential uh, responses. I like to call them uh, Siamese twins or two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're referred to in the first message that Jesus ever preached. You know, I think a, a preacher's first sermon is pretty important. Mine wasn't very good at all. It was a short thing, but, you know, you can say Jesus' first sermon was the greatest sermon, and we could learn a lot from it. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus preached this message when he said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus gave two commands to us in that, in that first sermon of his, which are the two essential responses of man to the gospel. So let's talk about them. He said, first you've got to repent. Now the word repentance is a very common word in Scripture. Um, I didn't look it up prior to this podcast, but you could look up the word repent, repentance, repented, all the forms of that word. I'm sure it's used, uh, it's got to be a hundred times or more in all of Scripture. Uh, but not only that, but the very meaning of the word is used in other ways. The word repent or repentance is like a U-turn. It's like a 180 turning around. That's what the word means. It's a change in direction. And so the word turn is often used in Scripture uh, as, a, as a euphemism, as a uh, synonym for repentance. So we, we don't even have to find just the word repentance in Scripture. We can find words that mean the same thing. And so with that included, the idea of repentance is used all throughout the Bible, hundreds of times. And it's the first prerequisite, the first requirement to be saved. We see it, for instance, in some of the great passages in Scripture. I love, in the book of Acts, my favorite sermon ever preached by a mortal man was Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And after he declared God is the creator and that he is not far from any one of us, he said in those famous words, But now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is the first requirement to be saved. And really, repentance is essential because without it, we'd never properly come to salvation on God's terms. All the famous preachers in the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all preached repentance. And by the way, repentance is not just an Old Testament thing. It's preached in the New Testament. Uh, Peter in Acts 3.19 says, Repent. Uh, Paul in Acts 26 and verse 20 commanded repentance. Uh, all through Scripture were commanded we've got to repent. Now, let's explain what that word means in, a more, in more detail. Some of these what we call Christian phrases or terms or biblical terms or, or uh, doctrines, we need to explain them. Many people today who have not been brought up in church and, and around the things of God don't know what these terms even mean. So we've got to do some explaining. I think it would help so much in understanding these great truths like salvation. Repentance, as I told you, is a turning around. It's a turning away from. But in the Bible, we could say it has three parts. For proper repentance to take place, it has three parts. First of all, a recognition of sin. A recognition of sin. That means you can't, you can't hide from your sins. You can't try to justify or make excuses about your sinful behavior. Proverbs 28, 13, for instance, says, 
He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Well, we see that first part of repentance in that definition there. You can't, you can't cover it up. And the second part of repentance was shown there as well, and it's this idea of being sorry for your sins. That's why you would confess. Why would a person confess anything they did that was wrong? Well, because they feel guilty. They have remorse. Repentance has to have a certain amount of remorse and regret uh, you know, when a husband uh, maybe cheats on his wife or, or a person uh, robs someone else or kills someone, sometimes they eventually just have to go back and confess it because the guilt just uh, eats them up. And so this is this idea of you need to be sorry about your sins. Second uh, Corinthians 7.10 has a phrase about repentance that's beautiful. It says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. See, that's what it works. Godly sorrow, not, not just being afraid or, or, or sorry you got caught. Many criminals, you'll see them interviewed, and, and they're, just, they're just upset they got caught. If they were let free, they'd go do the same uh, crime again. No, true repentance is a godly sorrow. And that leads to the third and final part of repentance that has to be present as well. Remember, you have to have an acknowledgement or confession. You have to have sorrow over it. But then there has to be a willingness to turn from your sins. Remember, repentance ultimately is a change of mind that results in a change of life. If you've never done a U-turn away from your sins, you have not repented. If you didn't turn away from your ungodly lifestyle, then you never really repented. I've told my... Uh, my personal testimony was in one of our earlier podcasts, but my wife and I were living a very wicked life in my late teens and, and uh, was confronted with the gospel and began to see how sinful I was and she saw how sinful she was. And we knew we needed to give up that life. We, need, we, we knew we needed to turn away from it. And we did. And that's what repentance includes. You have to be willing to forsake it. Now, let me clear up something because I know there's people that maybe here in the podcast will say, well, does that mean I got to clean my whole life up and then come and, and get saved? No, you can never do that. We're not saying you, 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 you turn over a new leaf or, or reform all your life and then you're ready to be saved. No, you come as you are, but you don't want to stay as you are. It's, a, it's an attitude. It's a, it's a principle in the heart that says, Lord, I'm coming to you. I don't want to continue in my sins and so I'm turning from them. Well, it's taught in the Bible very clearly, by the way. I mean, this isn't something I'm just coming up with. We know it's a scriptural mandate. It's a principle. Think of what Paul taught in, in Galatians 5. Listen to what he said here. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest. Then he lists all these sins. And I'm just going to skip ahead because the list is rather long. But for sake of time, he lists all these kind of lifestyles of sin and these, these uh, attitudes of sin. And then he says this. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What, what, what does he mean by that? He says if you're doing, which means living in, habitually practicing these kind of sinful behaviors, and you can go back and look at that in, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and you'll see all these things he mentions. What he's saying is if you continue in those, you have not repented. And so you have not been forgiven of your sins because of repentance is essential. Now, 
how do we come to repentance? It's not something we trump up and make up ourselves. Remember that guilt? That guilt is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in that great passage in John 16, 7 through 10, that the Spirit would come and convict or reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, which means it's the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God, the, the laws of God, the desire of God to, to forgive you, and He makes you see your sins so you'll desire to turn from them. And so repentance is number one. We've got to be willing to repent. Now, that's just one part. That's one side of the coin. The other side, which is equally important and essential, is faith. Faith. Once we repent, it's like we turn away from. That's the negative. Now we're turning to. That's the positive. Faith. Now, faith is one of the most crucial, uh, critical words in all of Scripture. I mean, all of the Bible can be broken down into, say, 12, 15, 20 special words or concepts or teachings or doctrines, and faith is definitely one of those. Now, many people misunderstand faith, though, just like they misunderstand repentance. Faith, first of all, is not simply believing some facts historically. It's not just having a head knowledge that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived about 2,000 years ago over in a little land called Israel, uh, even believing the historical facts of his perfect life and, and all the miracles he did and how he died on the cross and was buried, and even believing in the historical importance and proof and, and uh, uh, infallible truth of the resurrection. You could even believe that. But if it's only historical, if it's only an ascent, an acceptance of some facts, that's not faith. Faith in the Bible is much more than that. One other thing I must mention, too, at this point, faith is not a blind leap into the dark, into the darkness of the unknown. There's many people who just think faith is some kind of a crutch that Christians teach and we have to have to get along in life, and it's just kind of like, holding our breath, closing our eyes, and jumping off a cliff and hoping God saves us or protects us. That's not faith at all. One of the great verses in all the Bible, it defend, or defines faith, is Hebrews 11.1. 1. begins the great faith chapter. Listen to what it says. Hebrews 11.1, 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Notice those two great words that describe faith in that verse. It's substance and it's evidence. That doesn't sound like some blind leap into the dark to me. It's not. Faith is based on making a decision upon all the evidence that God has put around us of himself and all the way he's worked in our hearts to show he's real and Christ is real. And so faith is not just mental acceptance of facts and it's not some leap into the dark that you don't know what you're doing you're just doing it because you think you have to no i like to use a a word that's a good alternative to the word faith and it's the word trust when you put your faith in someone or something you're trusting in it i use this common just rather weak illustration but it 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 fits the point if I am getting ready to go somewhere on an airplane, often my wife and I will travel to see our kids, our precious grandkids, you know. Uh, when I get to the airport, I don't know what plane I'm going to be flying on. I have never met the pilot or co-pilot or the, you know, flight attendants or whoever. But you know what? I have to have trust that they know what they're doing, that the aircraft is is reliable, uh, it's, it's safe. And I get on that plane, I 
buckle my seatbelt, and I fly to the place I'm going to. I had to have trust in that airline and that in that aircraft and the in the personnel on board, right? That that's what faith really is. I'm trusting Jesus Christ to save me because I cannot save myself and I see that I'm going down for the count, like I described with a man drowning out in the lake. I see that I'm going to hell in my sins. I see that God's wrath, his judgment of sin is on me. And I see Jesus as that lifeguard. He's the hero. He's the knight in shining armor. He is the one that comes to save us like damsels in distress. He has to do the work. We can't save ourselves. And so this idea of faith is, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust, first of all, in who he is. Everything the Bible says about Christ. We've talked a lot about it in our last a couple of essentials, especially the last one under qualification. He's the God-man. He's completely God. He was completely man. He lived without sin. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He died a vicarious or substitutionary death. In my place, he was buried. After three days, he rose again. He's coming again. His word is true. Everything he said about himself and the Bible says of him is true. That's part of my trust. I've got to believe who he is. I've also got to believe in what he did, that he is the only way. Do you know, people don't like things that are dogmatic today. We're living in this tolerant generation that people don't want to ever say something's the only way. But Jesus said he was. We talked about that a little last week. And so I've got to believe he's the only way. I can't, I can't have Jesus plus my good works. I can't have Jesus plus some other religious practice, some other sacrament, some other uh, ritual, some other dogma, whatever. I can't have a church or some system save me. Only Jesus Christ can save me. Now, there's one other really important part about faith I want to bring up. And that is true faith and this trust I'm talking about is also a commitment to follow Christ because I'm going to trust him not only to save me. It's not just a kind of a get out of hell free card. It's not just going to heaven and escaping hell. Yes, that's part of the benefits of it. But it's also trusting him on how I should live from that point on. It's obeying Christ. The Bible or in the scriptures, let me just say Jesus greatest command was follow me. You look through the Gospels, you'll see him say it many times, follow me. Well, follow me is, is the epitome. It's the, it's the connecting of all these dots together. If I'm going to follow Christ, I've got to repent, turn away from what I was doing, how I was living. I've got to quit following the way I was going. But i also got to follow him now, where he wants me to go, how he wants me to live, what he wants me to do. And so coming to Jesus Christ is a commitment of your life. It's not just saying a prayer. It's not just asking Jesus into your heart or whatever some of these uh, rather man-made cliches have, have been, been brought up and used. They're, they're not in the Bible, by the way. Uh, the Bible calls us on to follow Christ. It calls us to be followers of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that as a result of your salvation, you'll know you're saved. And this is an important final point we'll, we'll include before we're done now is that you'll know you're saved by a changed life. Now, let me again emphasize, we don't save ourselves. This work of repentance and faith is God working on us and us responding. It's when we repent, when we put our faith in Christ, by the way, that's an instantaneous moment in time, you're saved in a moment. Remember the idea of being born again? 
Jesus said, unless or except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A birth happens in a moment. Every one of us has a birth certificate. We were born on a certain day and a certain time of that day. However, we forget there's a pregnancy period that leads up to every birth. I like to think of the pregnancy period leading up to salvation as when God's Spirit is working on us. He's showing us we need to repent. He's showing us how beautiful Christ is and that He's the only answer and that we want to put our faith in Him. Now, pregnancies sometimes don't make it to birth, do they? There's stillborns, there's miscarriages, God forbid there's people who take their children's lives in the womb by abortion, this horrible thing. I'm using just this analogy. Sometimes people begin the pregnancy period by God's word. It's planted in their heart. They're hearing it. But some of them don't come to full birth, if you will, full term, because they reject and turn away from Christ. They won't let the word really settle in their hearts. Uh, the seed and the sower parable in Matthew 13 and other gospels it's recorded. It's a beautiful illustration of that. I won't go into the whole thing, but just simply to say, the first three soils that Jesus spoke of when the sower went and sowed the seed, they all picture an unconverted person. Different, different places, one that does, has a stony heart that won't even let the seed uh, germinate or plant anywhere in their heart. They reject it totally. Other who lets the word quickly take some place in their heart, but they have no root. They're not really serious, and they bear no fruit. And then there's the other who, who does the same thing. There's like an immediate response, but then the cares of this life, he says, and the persecution and trials that the Christian life will bring, they choke out the word. It becomes unfruitful. The only saved person in that parable of the seed and the sower was the fourth soil, which is the human heart that opens its heart on good soil. It's, it call it good ground. That's what Jesus used that phrase. And that's a picture of the one who really repents and opens their heart, and God brings forth salvation. So, so here's, here's how it goes. We repent and believe God saves by his grace. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. Our requirement is to repent and trust Christ. You can't get away from this all throughout the scripture. I, I'm trying to keep this podcast to 30 minutes or so, so I can't go too deeply into this, but I could challenge you that you could study all through scripture and find out that salvation's always been the same way. Repentance and faith and, and defining those words properly. But God saves by his grace. And once we're saved, our lives are changed. That's the greatest evidence you, you become a Christian. Has your life been changed James, the book of James was given for us to really look at our faith and our salvation, you might say, to make sure it's genuine. And remember the great principle of the little book of James is faith without works is what? Dead, being alone. Many people have a dead faith because they have not produced good works after they claim they were saved. There has been no change of life. My life motto, my life's verse, I have many, but my greatest of all life verses that I had from the very beginning when I was saved back in May 11th, 1984, over 37 years ago now. Therefore, it's, it's by the way, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that's the great evidence that God has worked in your life. Now, let me just end by saying all that happens at salvation, it's amazing. We're forgiven of all our sins, Colossians 1.14. We're reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.18. We're justified before God, justification. What a great principle. 
as if we'd never sinned. We're declared not guilty, Romans 3, 25 through 28. We're at peace with God, Romans 5, 1. We're delivered from this present evil world and the judgment of God on this world, Galatians 1, 4. We're adopted into God's family, given all the privileges of a full child of God, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is an act of ownership, Ephesians 1, 13. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and living in us, Romans 8, 11. We are accepted by God, Ephesians 1, 6. And then, of course, we have eternal life, which is the great fringe benefit of our salvation. And so many verses teach that, John 3, 16, 5, 24, and so on. Well, this idea of God saving us is so amazing. God saves us by His grace and His mercy. His grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. His mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. Well, Jesus is our hero. And our church here at Arlington Baptist Church, we, we declare Christ. We want to preach Christ. He's the only hope of the world. He's the light of the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's everything. He's the resurrection and the life. We just brag about Christ. That's what our church is about. And so I've been so thankful that you've been a part of this. And thank you for listening today. And I hope these seven essentials will help you individually. If, if you've never come to Christ and you're listening to this podcast, you've never been saved, let me just urge you to go through these truths and make sure they're clear and for you to make that decision. If God's pricking your heart, he's convicting your heart of your sins, repent and believe Christ. Trust him. Follow him. The minute you make that commitment, you will be born again. Your life will never change. Christian, you that are listening to the podcast, let's make sure we don't leave out any directions. Hey, this is too important. Leave anything out. We need to make sure we give every part of the gospel to people. Don't leave a single part out. They need it all. You know, I'd rather have, as I said, maybe in an earlier lesson, I think I did. Please forgive me if I'm repeating myself occasionally from week to week, but hey, I'd rather have one true convert that really understood these great essentials and turned to Christ and their life was changed than a hundred people who made professions of faith or said prayers or whatever and were not really saved. We're in an epidemic in churches today, especially in America, of false converts. People who think they're saved because they had some experience or they uh, signed some car to raise their hand or came forward at an invitation at a church or a crusade or some event. Friends, that won't save you. Only what we talked about. True repentance, true faith in Christ and being born again, having your life changed. It's a radical thing. It's not a passive thing. And so I urge you to either come to Christ and be saved, or Christian, let's share this full message. And as I close, remember the motto. It ought to be of your life. I hope it'll be of mine. Conviction for truth and compassion for people. That's what it's all about. God bless you. Thank you for listening.